Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Great Scott Podcast. This is Michael Scott, and joining with me today is actor, writer, producer, and talent manager, basically a guy who's done it all in show business, Mr. Jeffrey Mark. How's it going, Jeffrey? I am so happy to be with you, Michael. I'm so happy you've invited me to talk with you and your listeners. Well, thank you so much for, for being a guest. So let's get started. All right, let's do this. Well, uh, speaking of getting started, how, how did you manage to get your start in uh, show you know, business? I was a very lucky person. When people ask me how I get started, I'm lucky because I always knew what I wanted to do. There was never a question growing up, should I be doctor, lawyer, Native American chief? That never occurred to me. I always wanted show business, and uh, I had opportunities as a child. Unfortunately, my parents uh, probably misguidedly thought that uh, my childhood would be better without them. So uh, I had to wait until I was old enough to pursue things on my own, which means I was 14. Uh, pretty much once I became a teenager, uh, I kind of shoved everybody out of the way and said, wait for me. So I got my start at the age of 15 professionally uh, working in dinner theaters outside of Washington, D.C. And uh, interestingly to me at the time, I had only done uh, – community theater and school things. And I wasn't hired as a child actor. I was hired to play uh, actually a middle-aged man, a character part in a musical, Little Abner. And, uh, <laughs> and I worked. And I, was getting, and I was getting paid every week to be there and to, to uh, travel to Washington and, and do uh, every weekend the show. Uh, that, that got me started. Uh, then I left for college early. So I was in college at 15, and as it happens to happen, as it happens in people's lives, uh, they were making a movie where I was going to college called Fighting Mad with Peter Fonda. Uh, it's an incredible waste of time, but every time <laughs> Peter sees me, he apologizes to me profusely for this. Uh, it was supposed to be a modern-day version of Shane, whatever that means. Okay. <laughs> because I never saw a whole script. I was only given sides of the, the parts I'd play, you know, the lines I'd have, which was all interacting with Peter. Sure. And we were shooting in Arkansas in a very hot, muggy summer, and I was in a, a bib overalls and a flannel shirt, soaked my skin, and Peter was in an air-conditioned dressing room doing whatever Peter was doing in those years. Peter is a very lovely man, a fine actor, and he's clean and sober these days. I can't um, uh, say what those days were like for him. Uh, so was Peter a uh, big star at, at the time? Oh, yeah, yeah. In the 1970s, you know, Peter, there were a whole bunch of people back then who made a whole lot of movies very quickly. Burt Reynolds, um... Uh, Elliot Gould, Peter, uh, who were big stars for about a decade. And then, I guess, other younger, newer men came along and kind of pushed them aside. Mm -hmm. And some of them, like Peter, is a character actor now. He does smaller things, but he's very good in everything he does. He wasn't good in our film. And uh, it opened in Times Square in New York back when they had real movies uh, like on a Tuesday night 
and I was working at a show in New York, and I couldn't get out till Thursday night. And by Thursday, it was gone. Uh, the whole it's, it's New York engagement was all of two days. I, I've seen about ten minutes of it on HBO once. It's never been released on DVD. I mean, this is just turkey lurkey time. It was terrible, mm-hmm. but it got me started because Richard Donner was the director, and uh, it was his first uh, studio movie. So his first movie, my first movie, and uh, that led to my going back to New York and being in off-Broadway shows. And my career kind of just built on itself. I'd do off-Broadway shows, and I would then sing in nightclubs after the shows were over. Uh, Like I would do a a show, we close at 11 o'clock. I I would do a midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning show in a nightclub, and I would sing jazz. Or I would do stand-up at a comedy club after the show. And I just kept building one thing on another until I kind of imploded. And we can, we're, we can certainly talk about that. I, I, it's not a secret, and uh, sure. I am happy to share what happened to me uh, in, my, in my 20s that I just developed a, a raging alcohol and drug problem. Were you and, uh, making good money at, at the time as well by doing all this? I guess one would have to define good money. I was making enough money to live on, and I, I was what you would—I guess you would call me a promising newcomer. I was getting cast in things. I was doing—I was touring in summer stock. I was getting commercials. I was being hired for things, and I was being hired in nightclubs, small nightclubs all over Manhattan. I was making a name for myself. Uh, people were interested in managing me. Uh, a record company brought me in to record for them to try me out. Well, guess who didn't show up because he was too high? Me. Guess who didn't show up at the manager's office because he got paranoid because he was high? Me. Well, I, I don't know if other businesses are much different than show business, but if you don't show up, you're done. You can have all kinds of excuses for not performing well when you're there, but if you don't suit up and show up, not only are you finished, but they make sure you're finished across the board. So I cut my own neck. You know, I, I just found myself unemployable, except for doing some charity work. Uh, I did a great deal of fundraising by performing uh, in the years when HIV first started. And to feed the homeless, I would I would lend whatever name I had and whatever talents I could muster to raise money for good causes. But I wasn't doing any paid work. And uh, then mm. – go ahead, sir. So, so looking – so looking back and uh you say that uh, you you were high and that you didn't show up um do you uh ever wish that um that that you could go back to those years and uh redo it all over again goodness gracious that great big uh, fairy godmother wand to fix everything well here's the problem with that kind of a fantasy let's assume for those of you listening who ever watched Bewitched, that wonderful television show, that I could twitch my nose like Samantha and go back in time, and this time I wouldn't be uh, 
having an alcohol or drug problem. What would have happened? Who knows? I might have become a big star. I might have fizzled out. I might have had 15 minutes of fame. I'll never know. I do know that who I am today, I've been clean and sober 27 and a half years now. Congratulations. Thank you, sir. Uh, and let me say to anyone listening, uh, not to sound like a commercial, but if you have or think you have or love someone who has a drug or alcohol problem, there is help out there for free. And if I could do it, anybody can do it. So don't feel like you're alone and don't feel like you have no hope. There is always hope. Yes. Because it was hope for me. So the person I am today, the person uh, speaking to you folks out there who are listening to, to Mike's podcast and you, Mike, yourself, the person you're listening to would be a different person if I haven't lived through that. If I hadn't had those experiences, if I hadn't done that harm to myself, I don't know that I would have had the success that I eventually ended up did having in show business. Okay. So, so doing my, my research here, uh, you have been a uh, production assistant on The Simpsons, correct? No, actually. <laughs> there, there seems to be an IMDb, a problem with my name, and I'm not quite sure what it is. Because uh, the things that I know are there that are real have to do with my producing for the Learning Channel and for Discovery Network and writing for them and uh, a little bit of the acting work I did. Uh, neither of the movies I made are on there. None of the television acting I did is on there. And of course, IMDb does not tell you about the books I've written or the radio shows I've hosted or my nightclub work or my theater work. Uh, a good deal of my career is not there. However, there are things there that have nothing to do with me and uh, I need to hire myself a brilliant 18-year-old to go in there and fix them because I don't know how to. Um, and I guess I'm at a point in my career where uh, it no longer matters. Uh, I don't need any more publicity than I already have. I don't need to be any more well-known than I already am. And... Uh, I, I don't even really look for work anymore. Uh, things fall into my lap. I do them happily, and I still do a lot of charity work. But I, I spend more time these days mentoring young people in show business and working with other people who would like to get sober or clean off of drugs and helping them get on their way. That takes up more of my time these days than um, my career does. Although I am writing my memoirs, which will hopefully be out. There are a lot, a lot of people out there who do need the help of getting off drugs, alcohol, and um, just, just anything of, of whatever. And I do applaud you on, on the work that you do, and uh, thank you so much for that. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure and my honor. I've been a very lucky man. There are a lot of people who get into the business and screw up for some reason, and their careers are over. When I got sober and wanted to get back in the business, the business took me back. Very lucky for that. I'm very lucky that my talent was 
noticed by people like Milton Berle and Steve Allen and Jack Carter, who took me under their wings, uh, taught me about comedy, introduced me to the right people who might be able to help me. Uh, there are other, other people in the business, writers, comedy directors, musicians, who taught me whatever it was I didn't already know, helped polish my talent, and then helped get me work. So I've had wonderful, wonderful mentors who reached out to me who made a difference in my life, which is why today I do the same thing. The people who helped me are unfortunately either gone or they don't need my help. They're, they're incredibly well off, uh, both financially and in their careers. So I'm paying it forward. I'm trying to give other young people who are ambitious – who have talent, who want to do the work that will get them somewhere in the business, the chance to develop their talents and polish their talents and then meet the right people. And it's, it's a joy for me because so much was done for me. So, uh, so you've mentioned three of the biggest names in comedy um, who, uh, well, basically, <laughs> I would say just that, they... They took the comedy world by storm. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about um, Steve or uh, Jack or Uncle Milty? I can pick one, and I'll, I'll tell you about all three. Uh, Uncle Milty, he's actually my favorite, funniest man that I think I've I've ever seen. You have exceptionally good taste, Mike. Mr. Burrell and I met because I was writing a book about the television career of Lucille Ball. And Jack Carter took me to lunch at the Friars Club to meet Milton at the Friars Club. Eventually, I became a member of the club myself. At this point, I couldn't have known that. Mr. Burrell, and I called him Uncle Milty, by the way, which he hated. He hated other professionals calling him that. You know, for those of you listening who don't know, Milton Burrell had been a nightclub and Broadway and radio entertainer. And he'd made a few movies, but he wasn't a big star in films. And he had a radio show they wanted to bring to television called the Texaco Star Theater. And uh, this is in the summer of 1948. He exploded. And the, the entire television world was turned on its ear. He became the first superstar of television, even before Lucille Ball. But his shows were done live from New York. Uh, there was no teleprompter. There were no cue cards. And you timed the show as best you could. In those days, in a 60-minute program, 58 minutes of the program was entertainment. There were only two, two minutes of commercials in a whole hour. And they mistimed the show. And he's getting ready to sing the goodnight song, and his stage manager is giving him quick signs, waving at him that he had three minutes to fill. And he said a few things and told a joke and thought he was finished. And the guy <laughs> says, no, two more minutes yet. He didn't know what to do. And he remembered that he'd been in a store and a woman had said, Mr. Burrell, I don't know what to do. My children are staying up to nine o'clock and beyond watching television because they won't miss your program and they won't go to sleep. So Milton thought I can address this to fill the time. And he, he wanted to say, well, kids, you know, listen to Mr. Burrell, and he thought Mr. Burrell was a little too stuffy. 
Well, listen to Milton. Well, that was a little, you know, he was a middle-aged man. So just out of his brain. Listen to Uncle Milty. When this program goes off, television is over for the night. Go to sleep. Listen to your Uncle Milty. And the, the show went off the air. The next day, he was walking down the street outside of his apartment building. And cab drivers and sewer workers were yelling at him, Hey, Uncle Milty! Something about that resonated with the audience. And the name just stuck. He hated for people in the business to call him that. Um, he was somebody who was an extremely private man. He spent so much of his time in front of an audience that when he had a chance to have a meal or be with other professionals, he wanted to talk about the business without the glaring eyes of what we call civilians, people who are not in show business. And happily, during the meal we had, mm-hmm. he realized that I knew a great deal about the history of show business and a great deal about the history of his career. And I began to talk with him about specific monologues, specific jokes he told, uh, a specific episode of his television series. And he kind of looked at me with this a look of, uh, who are you? How do you know this? And he pointed his finger at me. He said, young man, you know things. Now we're going to talk for real. And that started our friendship. How long did you know uh, Uncle Milty before he passed? I I met Milton, uh, golly, probably 1996. So I knew him from that point forward, the last five or six years of his life. And uh, it was always an honor. He was always enormously generous with young performers, trying to help them. Anybody he felt who had talent and ambition. See, he taught me that. Don't help people who don't have ambition. Don't help lazy people. Help people who have the talent and really want to get somewhere. And then if they do, help them. So he was always happy and ready to sit with younger people, give advice, listen to your humor, read your books, whatever your talent was, and propel you forward. He wrote a wonderful blurb for the back of my Lucy book uh, about having worked with her and how good the book was. By the way, uh, oh, what, what is the name of the, the book? The Lucy Book. <laughs> the Lucy Book. Okay. The Lucy Book. I just wanted to give you a real, real quick plug. Thank you, sir. It was a take on the Lucy show. So this is the Lucy Book. Uh, it's a compendium of every time Lucille Ball appeared on television, from early live television before I Love Lucy till she died. All of her own programs, all of the shows on which she was a guest star, the talk shows, the variety shows, commercials she did, documentaries she was in, game shows she played on, everything. Who, who was in it? Who wrote it and produced it and directed it? What was going on? What made that episode special? Uh, interviews with the people who were there. And then what might have been going on in her personal life that affected the work. So it's pretty much like a Lucy encyclopedia. Oh, almost. But it's about the work, and it's, it's show by show in a chronological order. And Steve Allen wrote the forward for it for me, as did Lucy Arnaz and Desi Arnaz Jr. also wrote a forward for me. 
and the, the Arnez family happily, and uh, I'll be forever grateful, uh, was behind the book. It's an authorized book by the estate, and uh, it's done very well for me. And, uh, you know, for a person to hear from people, I keep your book under my pillow at night. When will a new edition come out? Mine is falling apart. I read it so often. <laughs> Those are the kinds of things you live to hear as an author. So I'm very grateful that it's done so well. So, uh, so you mentioned that uh, Steve Allen also helped out with your book. Uh, tell, can you do, uh, tell us a story or two about Steve or, or Jack as well? Oh, sure. Steve I met because I was doing research for the first book I wrote, which is on Ella Fitzgerald, the great, wonderful jazz singer. Yep. And Steve was nice enough. He'd written a song about Ella, and I closed my book with his song for free. He let me just use it. And we became friends because, once again, I knew about his career and the history of television. And we would just sit in his office discussing morality, ethics, concepts, and comedy, old and new, what he thought of old comedy, what he thought of new stuff, uh, that he was a fan of my writing, which just blew me away. It's like, you're a fan of my writing? Uh, right before he passed away, we shook hands. Uh, I was going to do, I was going to write and produce a documentary on him for the learning channel. And he said, you know, I've got 20 or 30 tunes. I've never turned into songs as I don't have lyrics. Why don't I send them to you? Pick out the 10 you like the best and let's write some songs together. And we shook hands on it. Oh, wow. And, and like three days later, he passed away and it never happened. Uh, that that that's a one of those gee I wish that would have gone through the way we had planned it, because it would have been you know a highlight of my life to have written songs with him. It just the timing was off. And a real absolute brilliant man in comedy, and uh, he absolutely just nailed it in game shows and uh, basically. Uh, well, let me let me let me ask you this: um, Do you think that we will ever see another uh, Uncle Milty, Steve, or Jack? The industry has changed. There are wonderful stand-up comedians today. Uh, people like Louis C.K. that you might know about, or a wonderful young guy like Earl Skakel, who you don't know about, who work all the time, who are brilliant at what they do. They've developed wonderful on-stage points of view. For a stand-up comedian to have any real success, besides being funny, they have to tell jokes that nobody else can tell. If they're telling jokes that you can tell and I can tell and Aunt Sally can tell and Uncle Irving can tell, then their material isn't very strong. It has to be something with their unique point of view. And Louis C.K., Earl Skakel, several others I could mention, they've developed that. Uh, Louis C.K. probably is the hottest stand-up comedian in the world right now. But... <sighs> We have become, as a society, you know, when, when Milton Love would do a television show or Lucille Ball pick any episode of any show she did, and 40 million people were watching. Today, if you're on television, if you're lucky enough to be on television, if you get two or three million people watching, you're considered you're a big hit because there's 500 channels. When these guys were on TV, there were three networks. That's all you had to choose from. So millions and millions and millions of people 
invited these folks into their homes and people felt about them as though they were almost family. I don't think you have that feeling anymore. I think the last person the public felt that way about was Oprah Winfrey. Um, and I don't know that anyone has come along since then that folks feel are family to them on television. Maybe Ellen, maybe Ellen DeGeneres. But uh, they can't be like Milton and Jack Carter and Steve Allen because they don't have the exposure these people had. Yeah, that's true. It might be harder for uh, the younger people who listen to this to think there was only three channels back in the day. I mean, really? <laughs> and, the, and, not, and not even the whole country got all three channels. Yeah, there were plenty yeah. of towns that had one television station, and they'd pick the best of the three networks. And TV was not on 24 hours a day. I think it went off at uh, uh, um, 11 o'clock, right? In the beginning. Each nine. Yep. In the beginning, yeah. Uh, there was no daytime TV in the beginning. It started at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Television has grown by leaps and bounds through the years, and it's made a huge difference to the industry of show business. But cable has made the same difference, and not necessarily in a good way. So as technology changes, it becomes impossible to be the same kind of star these people were. They were, they were brilliantly talented, but they were in the right place at the right time in history to get the kind of exposure they did. I don't think there's ever been a bigger star than Lucille Ball. Her face to this day has been seen by more people on the planet Earth than anybody else's face in history. That includes drawings of Jesus. Hmm. Um, now, as time goes by and her shows aren't being shown as much anymore, that will change. There was a time 20 years ago, 30 years ago, for you youngsters out there, the idea that Lucille Ball's shows would not go on forever was ridiculous. Well, I, I talk with young people today who don't know who she is. I talk yeah. with young people who have never seen an episode of I Love Lucy. Yep. Times change. Absolutely. So uh, let me ask you something. Now, now that we're talking about Lucille Ball, what is it about her that, um, that we came to love about her? It's a good question. I wrote a whole book about it. Okay. Lucille Ball was a tremendous actress. She doesn't get enough credit for that. Miss Ball was nothing like the characters she portrayed on television. She found a loving, childlike quality that people could relate to. The brilliance of how the actors interreacted due to the producer Jess Oppenheimer and the original I Love Lucy writers and Jess was also the head writer, the brilliant casting of Desi Arnaz and Vivian Vance and William Frawley, the genius directing of William Asher, who was a good, dear friend of mine, Carl Freund, who practically invented motion picture photography, was in charge of the cameras. They hired wonderful people. They scored with incredible casting. And Miss Ball had a way of taking ridiculous, nonsensical, improbable situations and making herself believe in it so much the audience at home believed in it as well. 
There's a very famous episode of I Love Lucy where Lucy and Ethel, the two characters, the two ladies, are baking a loaf of bread. And they put too much yeast in the bread, and they put the bread in the oven, and they open the oven door, and the bread comes out and pins Miss Ball across the kitchen (laughs) against her kitchen sink. Now, in reality, I don't care how much yeast you put into anything, it can't grow three or four times deeper than the oven. It just doesn't happen that way. But you believe it. Until I wrote the book and had to really look with a microscope at these episodes, it never occurred to me. Goodness gracious, that's ridiculous. How did Miss Ball how did Miss Ball get that elephant in her bedroom in Manhattan in another episode? These things, but she believed it so much that she made you believe it and not question it. That's a very rare talent. That's incredibly good acting. Now, is that something that uh, someone you would say in your mind uh, would have to be born with, so to speak? Yes, yes. Everyone we enjoy as performers is born with talent. That talent, I believe, whether you believe in the Holy Spirit or God or a higher power or the universe moving in your life or a doorknob, but whatever makes us us, we're born with talents. These people not only recognized the talents they had, but they worked incredibly hard at developing them. And then they were ridiculously ambitious in taking those talents and trying to get them to be seen, appreciated, and developed and used. So you have to have the talent. You have to have a talent for having talent. You have to have the driving ambition. And then you have to have good luck. So uh, what advice would you give to someone um, who might be in that position right now? (sighs) Uh, Get a job at the post office. You, any of you listening, if you want to be in show business, you must want to do that more than anything else you want to do in life. More than a girlfriend or a boyfriend, more than a vacation, more than a new car, more than going to the party, more than anything. It has to be your driving force. And I say that because... Every year, about 10,000 people come to Los Angeles to be in some form of the business. 9,000 of them will never work. The 1,000 who do put on blinders, and this is what they do with their time seven days a week till they break through. They take the business as a business. They take it very seriously. They do the footwork to find out how the business works. They take whatever classes or teaching they need to hone their talents and then when they get a chance to expose their talents they are ready and they are tremendously ambitious to do that which means they're also tremendously hard workers nobody just falls into show business and lasts it's always hard work and then once you break through it's even harder work 
to stay good and to stay relevant because there's all these folks every year, 10,000 of them coming to push you out of the way because they want their moment in the spotlight. It is not an easy business if you haven't got the backbone for it. Don't do it. But if you have the backbone, if you have a burning desire, if you've got that ambition, then you must do it. See, I'm in show business because I must. That's how I was born. It's in my DNA. And the people we're talking about, Jack Carter, Steve Allen, Lucille Ball, Milton Berle, two or three dozen other people I could mention, they had to do this. There was nothing else for them to do. On our next episode, we will talk about your uh, the, the people that helped you, and also I'll try and find something that uh, about show business that that maybe I can stump you with. My pleasure.